I hope you brought a Bible with you this morning. If you did, open to the book of 1 Peter. We've been in a study of this book for several weeks. We're going to wrap it up next Sunday, and then we're going to move right into the book of 2 Peter. A lot of you have already been reading ahead in that book. A few weeks ago, Don Sanders and I encouraged you to read it utilizing the 3-2-1 Bible study technique, and I know a number of you have been doing that. So we'll be finishing First and Second Peter around Thanksgiving. But this morning, we are in chapter 5 of the first letter. Let's just get into it. We're going to read the first nine verses. Here we go. So, well, let's stop right there. That's the very first word. So, we need to spend some time with that word. Biblically, it is incredibly important. It's up here on the screen for you to see this. The word so, tiny little word, is incredibly important in studying the Bible. In the English language, it is equally important, so much so that there's actually a title for it. Not only this word so, but other words as well. They are all captured under this title. My guess is there's only about three people in our church, and I'm not one of them, that is aware of what this title is, or at least I wasn't aware until I started studying for this. Here's the title in the English language for the word so that becomes very important biblically. It is called a coordinating conjunctive. Now I'm really curious how many of you remember that from high school English, a coordinating conjunctive. Wow, there's the only people raising their hands are still in school. So apparently this is one of those things that bounces off of you pretty quick, called a coordinating conjunctive. Here's a way of thinking about it. So is an English word that apart from its other uses has become increasingly popular in recent years as a coordinative conjunctive opening word in a sentence. Now, it's really interesting how they end that definition. It has become very popular in recent years as a coordinating conjunctive opening word in a sentence. Those that explain this, and I need their help, and maybe you do too, would actually help us see why that's so significant. Here's what they say. When so is used as an opening word, it is used as a coordinating conjunctive to refer backwards to something previously mentioned. It is you, or when used as an opening word, it is a discourse marker. It is used to signal that the following words are chosen for their relevance to the listener. And it is used as an opening word to provide a small amount of extra thinking time. Interestingly, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, when the word so is used the way it is, it meets all four of those criteria. But it's the second one that's really kind of interesting. It's used as a discourse marker. Now, little little poll here real fast. How many of you graduated high school before 1997? All right, a good number of you. How many of you graduated high school after 1987? I'm sorry, did I say 97 first? I got to back up. How many of you graduated before 1987? There's a few more hands. How many of you graduated after 87? Oh, man. Those of you that graduated before 87, you get a free pass. Those of you that graduated after 87, oh, man, the spotlight is on you. In 87, 
the word discourse marker or the term discourse marker associated with words like so became popularized and it was taught. So those of us that graduated, and for me, skin of my teeth, graduated in 86. Those of us that graduated before 87, free pass. Those of you after that, you ought to know what this is. How many of you know what a discourse marker is? <laughs> okay, well, then you need some help too. Here it is. A discourse marker is a word or a phrase that plays a role in managing the flow and structure of discourse. That's what a discourse marker is. In our biblical application of this in 1 Peter chapter 5, the discourse are the verses, the words, the passage that will follow the word so. That's the discourse. The way the word so is managing that discourse is by causing us to look backwards. That's what discourse markers do. That's what this word so is designed to do. Just like the word therefore. When you come across a verse in scripture that starts with the word so, push pause and think to yourself, I've got to look backwards in order to get context and meaning. If we don't do that, there is an easy trap of us reading forward and pulling things out of the passage that are not really meant to be there. We may get the words off the page, but not the real true meaning of those words. So this discourse marker is given to you to say, hold it, push pause, go back, see what the context is, and then move forward. So I want us to do that today. Remember, the word therefore is the exact same type of thing. You find so or therefore at the beginning of a verse, you look backwards. You find out what the context is. For this, we're going to go back just two verses to chapter 4, verse 17. Take a look. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, here's what this so really wants to shine a light on. Peter is teaching at the end of chapter 4 that a time is coming when trials will fall on Christians. He is teaching that a time is coming when those won't just be trials, but he actually gave it a deeper meaning when he used this expression. A fiery trial is coming. And he teaches that it will begin in the church. It will begin with believers. And that has proven true since Peter wrote these words. Right after he penned these words, Nero became the emperor of Rome and Nero began persecuting Christians in unprecedented ways. Everything shifted. By 70 AD when Jerusalem fell, Christians were considered the biggest outlaws there were. And it continued that way for a long, long time. And even today, when the name Christian is mentioned or Christ is brought into a religious conversation, persecution and trials tend to follow very quickly. It's been true since Peter wrote those words. It is true today. The church faces fiery trials. 
And by all appearances, there's suffering attached to those trials. We're seeing some of that happen around us right now in real time. Those types of trials are taking place. The church is facing them over and over and over again. If you were with us last week, we talked about the fact as we wrapped up chapter 4 that Peter was saying the reason God teaches what he does in books like 1 Peter is because he wants our witness. He needs the witness of Christians so that those that are ungodly can see what the godly are doing, that the ungodly can become godly. So that those that are not Christian will watch Christians and desire to become Christian. In the face of fiery trials, how we handle things is of the utmost importance. The trials are coming. They are coming personally and corporately. So the church has to be ready for it. That's why Peter writes what he does in chapter 5. And the word so directs us back to that understanding. So that we can look at everything that he's saying is about to happen and then apply the teaching that he gives us as we move forward after the so. Does that make sense? You're with me? Then let's move forward. We're going to pick up with that so. Listen to what the apostle writes. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now it is interesting in light of this knowledge of coming trials that Peter starts the way he does. He starts by addressing the elders, the leaders of the church. I love the fact that Peter would put himself in that category. At the beginning of the book, he calls himself an apostle. But here in chapter 5, for the practical purposes of what he's writing, he says, I'm a fellow elder. I know exactly what I am speaking of, and I am writing to myself as much as I'm writing to you. So he kind of says to a group of leaders in the church, hey, we're all in this together, and we better be paying attention. Now, a lot of times when people hear the term elder in the church, they're confused by it. And then they see other terms that get attached to it, like the term bishop in the book of Acts. Or they hear about an elder being an overseer. And they're not exactly sure what it means. Well, we can take all of that and really boil it down in a way that that can make it make sense very quickly. First, you have to understand that the term bishop and overseer are the same in the original language. But elder and overseer oftentimes get used together, though they are speaking of the same person. 
Here's a way to think about it that just helps you break it down. When you hear the term elder, that is speaking to the spiritual maturity of the person that holds that office. That's what elder means. It is the spiritual maturity of the person that holds that office. When you hear the term overseer, that is simply talking about the responsibility of the office. So elder is talking about the person, overseer is talking about the position. When we put those two together, we can start to understand the whole of what eldership really is. They are tasked with overseeing the flock. Now that's an interesting term as well. And a lot of us will find ourselves saying, why is it that in the Bible we are referred to as sheep? Well, you have to make the application of it. It's pretty good. During the days of Scripture, when it was being written, sheep were raised for wool, they were raised for other things, but they were not necessarily raised for meat. That would be too costly. So most of the shepherds that raised sheep, and particularly the temple shepherds, they raised sheep to become sacrifices. So when we hear the church talked about as sheep, it's a sacrificial application. Remember Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. So when elders are watching over the flock, they're watching over living sacrifices. They're watching over those that would give their lives to Christ. The elders are the shepherds. It is a job given to them by God, and it is a weighty one. Peter would actually say, you make sure your heart motives are right to the elders. You make sure you're doing this for the right purpose, because when trials come, the church is going to watch you. When trials come, you're going to have to shepherd, oversee the flock through those trials. And that responsibility rests on you. And Peter says, I take it seriously because I'm an elder too. So he lays all of that out. I don't want us to spend too much time with that this morning. We have other things to get into. That is just directed to this specific group of people. But I love the fact that as he talks about these fiery trials and he gives us warnings, he starts with the elders. It is so good that he does that. So good. But moving on, he levels the playing field and brings everybody into the conversation. Watch what happens, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So in just half of one verse, he addresses the whole of the church. Those of you that are younger, follow their lead. You be subject to the elders because they're taking their role very seriously. And when fiery trials come, you watch them, you pay attention. But listen to what he does next. He goes from the older, more mature in the church, those that take that role of leadership. He talks to everybody, the older and the younger, and then he does this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Oh, this is good teaching. This is good teaching. Peter says, as we face some of these difficulties that are going to come our way, as a church and even as individuals, humility becomes something of the utmost importance. 
Humility becomes something that everyone needs to set their sights on. But humility can be one of those things in Scripture that is really hard for people to figure out. So let's kind of work at it from the reverse side, the enemy, the antithesis of humility. That is pride. And it is one of the most effective tools that our enemy, the devil, has in disrupting the church. Pride becomes one of the most difficult things for a church to face, and it becomes one of the easiest things for the enemy to use. Are you aware of the fact that God hates pride? He hates pride. Now, that's not my term. I'm not exaggerating it. The Bible says God hates pride. Don't believe me. Believe the Bible. Let's go to the book of Proverbs together. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. Solomon writes these words. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now there you have it. They're laid out. Six things God hates and the seventh one he despises. We can tie all of those together in pride, but you might say, "Mm, I'm not sure how tightly that gets tied in. Well, let's go to chapter 8 together. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. That's God speaking. He hates pride. So he gives us humility to make sure that we don't fall into that such easy trap. So he says, you make sure you set your sights on humility. You make sure that you humble yourself. And then Jesus actually gives us a pattern of what that looks like. You don't have to go with me. You can turn back just to 1 Peter 5. We're headed back there in a minute. But listen to this. John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you who are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That word blessed, by the way, means happy. If you know these things and do them, you'll be happy. So just follow my pattern is what Jesus was teaching. Just do what I've done and it'll keep you humble. Take the focus off of yourself and put it on others. And when you're doing that, you will be calibrated the right way. That's what humility does for us. It keeps us calibrated. It keeps us shored up. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul would write these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others." Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So just do what Jesus did. That's what what we're learning all through Scripture, and that's what Peter's calling out. If you want to beat pride back, then see people the way Jesus sees them. I like the way Warren Wiersbe says this. Humility is not demeaning ourselves and thinking poorly of ourselves. It is simply not thinking of ourselves at all. That's really good. I would add to Wearsby's teaching this. Humility is simply seeing others as Jesus does. When your focus is on someone else, it's hard to see yourself. In the face of trials, we tend to turn the light inward and focus on ourselves. And we say things like, why is this happening to me? How come this isn't happening to them? Why do I have to go through this? And we make everything about us. And when we're going through periods of great success, we do the same thing. We make it about us. Well, humility applies in both settings and it keeps us calibrated. It keeps us focused where we should, on other people. And when your testimony is of the utmost importance, focusing on other people is really, really significant. So you do that, and humility is the way to go about it. By the way, when we're in those moments where we say, why am I going through this, and oh, poor me, and all those kinds of thoughts permeate our minds, and we look at other people that don't seem to be struggling the way we're struggling, maybe they're not even believers, and it seems like their life is going a whole lot better than ours. You remember what Peter teaches in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God will set everything right in his time. So trust his timing. His timing is not our timing. So you trust his timing. And you may not see everything getting set right in this life, but you will in heaven. You trust his 
timing and no matter what, you humble yourselves and you keep that attitude that is focused on other people because it is very significant. Now, we're going to jump into something in verse 7 that is going to cause me to meddle a bit in some of your lives. And some of you are not going to like it. And you're going to be tempted to shoot emails to me after church. Well, let me encourage you to do that at Tina Allspa at... <laughs> just kidding. So I'm going to meddle for a bit, but let me remind you, you didn't ask me to be your pastor to only tell you things that you want to hear. Sometimes as your pastor, I have to say some hard things to you, and I'm about to say some hard things. So I want you to stay with me through this while I meddle in your life. We're going to take a teaching that Peter puts in the midst of all of this for a specific reason, and it is tied to that so. Remember, trials are coming, and when trials come, we have to make sure that we keep things in the right perspective. So in verse 7, in light of those trials, he says this, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The subject of anxiety in modern culture and society, has run rampant. It has run rampant. And people are using the word anxiety or they're using worry or they even use depression as a place to hide, a way to isolate themselves from everyone else around them. And that's not good. That is not godly. That is not what the Bible teaches. And so we have to figure out another way around that. And I want to say this, parents meddling in your lives just a little bit and grandparents meddling in your lives just a little bit, so pay close attention here. It is becoming epidemic among young people. Anxiety, worry, and depression is becoming epidemic among young people. In March of this year, a study on anxiety was released and it is widely accepted to be the most authoritative study that there has ever been on this issue. It's called the Ballard Report. The Ballard Report and its release had some shocking things to say, like this. Anxiety and depression is becoming increasingly prevalent among young adults in the U.S. who are typically defined as individuals between 18 and 30 years of age, with both disorders increasing, listen to this, by 63% from 2005 to 2017. Now, if that is not shocking enough, the Ballard Report goes on to say that of that 63% increase since 2020 when COVID hit, it went up another 25%. That's amazing. And that's why we're hearing about kids with anxiety disorders, students with anxiety disorders all the time. Young adults that are saying, oh, I can't do that because that, that would push my anxiety too far or that would cause me to be too anxious. Those are terms that are permeating all kinds of conversations among young adults. And sometimes these young people are using those terms because they've heard them modeled or they have been allowed to do that. And it's not good. It is not good. Look at how the Ballard Report goes on to explain that. While this increase in both anxiety and depression among young adults is a complicated issue with many causes, major contributing factors include greater levels of social media engagement, academic stress, and economic stress. 
Some also claim that the rise in these disorders is due to an increased amount of awareness. However, research and evidence on this matter is limited. The increased prevalence of these debilitating disorders has hurt the academic and vocational performance of young adults, irreparably damaged interpersonal relationships, caused many develop, to develop co-occurring substance abuse disorders, and led many to die by suicide. And that was released in just March of this year. And there are new things that continue to come out on this issue. So today when we start hearing young people especially saying, oh, I, I have anxiety, I can't do that because my anxiety this or my anxiety that. One of the things that we have to do is help them figure out how to overcome it, not hide within it. And that means that we have to model that as well as encourage people to figure out, young people to figure out especially how to change the pattern of it. And there are some ways to do that. Because in the face of fiery trials, anxiety is always lurking in the shadows. And fiery trials can take on all kinds of different definitions if we allow it to. So if we choose to say, here's something that you're anxious about and you're wanting to run away from or you're wanting to isolate from or you're wanting to hide from, instead of doing that, let's figure out a healthy way to address it and then move into the things that you are anxious about and wanting to isolate from so that anxiety does not win. And we have to figure out how to do it. So let's just go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter uses the word casting, connecting us back to the word so when trials come. And then he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The perfect antidote to anxiety issues is Jesus Christ. The perfect antidote to anxiety issues is Jesus Christ. The perfect antidote to anxiety issues is Jesus Christ. Let's try one more time. The perfect antidote to anxiety issues is Jesus Christ. So how do we lean into him that we might be able to cast all of that onto him? Well, just Phil's idea on this. Number one, you memorize this verse of scripture so that in anxious moments, you quote it like muscle memory. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting all my anxiety on Jesus because he cares for me. Casting all my anxiety onto him because he cares for me. And if I can cast it onto him, I already have victory. If I can cast it onto him, I already have the strength that I need to face whatever it is that I have to face. So I will cast it onto him. And I will do that first through prayer. So once I've quoted the verse, I'm going to pray and ask God to take the issue, whatever it is, I'm going to ask him to take it and give me the strength to face it. I'm going to ask God to stand with me and move forward with me as I face whatever it is that I'm wanting to run backwards from and isolate from. So I'm going to ask God to get in it with me and then keep me where I need to be. Our daughter Katie lives in Texas where she gets to teach young people how to ride horses and love Jesus. It's her dream job. She gets to teach kids to ride horses and love Jesus. And she's been doing that for a while. Her favorite group of young people to get to teach are those with special needs. Her ultimate dream job is to run an equine therapy program for special needs kids. That's what she really wants to do. 
A few years ago, she had an autistic girl that she was teaching to ride in Wyoming. So she wasn't at the camp where she got to teach about Jesus, but she got to teach about Jesus with this young girl. She got her on the horse, and as soon as she got on the horse, the girl jumped off. So she got her back on the horse, and she said, don't jump off the horse. And instantly, the girl started saying, don't jump off the horse, don't jump off the horse, don't jump off the horse. Then she started to move the horse, and as Katie's leading the horse, the girl wants to jump off the horse again, and Katie said, don't jump off the horse, stay on the horse. And the girl started saying, stay on the horse, stay on the horse, stay on the horse. And they went and rode several miles, and are you ready for this? Along the way, they came across a grizzly bear on the trail. As they came up to the grizzly bear, the horse started to get nervous, and Katie thought, this is going to go bad, and it's going to go bad in a big way. And the girl just kept saying to herself, stay on the horse, stay on the horse, stay on the horse, stay on the horse. For a couple hours, Katie rode listening to a girl right behind her say, stay on the horse, stay on the horse, stay on the horse. That's one of the coolest things ever. Because that girl was nervous and she was anxious and she was scared. And over and over and over again, she said the same thing. Stay on the horse, stay on the horse, stay on the horse. When we ask Jesus to take our anxiety, what he will say to us is stay on the horse. So you can tell yourself over and over and over again, stay on the horse, stay on the horse, and he'll walk us with all of our special needs through whatever it is that we have to walk through, but stay on the horse. Don't run backwards and don't hide in anxiety, stay on the horse. Parents and grandparents, help your kids lean into Christ. Do not help them lean into anxiety. Help them lean into Christ. I'm going to say that again. Parents and grandparents, help your kids lean into Christ, not into anxiety. If we don't, this epidemic that is ravaging our society and our culture will continue to rage. So lean into Christ. I'm going to quit meddling now. And I'm going to go back to verse 8. So why don't we do that? Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, keep your head about you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is one of the most pointed and powerful teachings on spiritual warfare in all of Scripture. And it is tied to the so because of the trials that come. When trials come, we're weak. When trials come, we're vulnerable. And our enemy is prowling around waiting for those opportunities. When we first meet Satan in the Bible all the way back in the book of Genesis, we meet him as a serpent that shows up unexpectedly and he bites us when we're not looking for him. Adam and Eve are fully aware of that. When we meet Satan at the end of the Bible, we meet him as an accuser of the brethren, where he stands before us and says, you're, you're not good enough. The things that you've done are too much for the blood of Christ to cover. Your sins are too big. He accuses us all the time, beats us down. And then the Bible would actually say in the book of Revelation, he's the destroyer. Well, when we meet him here in 1 Peter, he's a lion seeking whom he can devour. So Peter says, pay attention to those things so that you don't listen to his voice when he tells you you're not good enough for Jesus' death on the cross, when he tells you that your sins are too big. They're not too big. Jesus died for them. 
Don't take anything from that. That's the atonement and Jesus gave his life for it. Don't, don't listen to the accuser. And don't, don't let him become the destroyer. But you watch out for him because he's a lion prowling around seeking whom he can devour. And Peter goes on to give us some great teaching for how to deal with it. I broke it down into three things, just three quick things. Let me show them to you. Number one, recognize the enemy. Pay attention. When he shows up, know that he's there. Know that it's him. And don't, don't give credit where credit's not due. Don't, don't allow Satan to get credit for things that are happening in your life because life is happening. You don't have to do that. Just recognize him for who he is. Number two, respect the enemy. That's hard to hear a preacher say, respect the devil. But you need to, he's powerful. Respecting him doesn't mean giving him anything that he doesn't deserve. It just means recognizing his power. So recognize him, respect him, and then resist him. And when you resist with Jesus on your side, you've already won. When you resist with Jesus on your side, the victory is already there. It's already there. We just move into it. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? And in the face of trials, our enemy, the devil, he's looking for those weak spots where he can get us through pride, through anxiety, through anger, through fear, through all kinds of different emotions. So you resist him. Stand firm in your faith and don't let anything move you. And the victory is already there. Stay on the horse. Stay on the horse. Let me wrap this up with James's teaching that just seems to strengthen Peter's. James was the half-brother of Christ. This is James chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen again to how he starts. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Sadly enough, today we have reversed that order and we find people that are submitting themselves to the devil and resisting God. Don't fall into that trap. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Don't reverse it. Don't reverse it. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Even in the face of trials, he'll flee from you. There is great strength in what Peter wrote and it all begins with the so. So everything that he says after so, boy, it undergirds what we need undergirded. It keeps us calibrated and on the right path. And it'll help you stay on the horse. Why don't you stand and we'll pray together and Raina's going to close our service. Father in heaven, thank you for this pointed teaching. When we see it and we understand it for what it is, it, it allows us to look at difficulties in a different light. Help us always see it that way. I pray, Father, that when the enemy attacks and when he's coming after us, looking for our vulnerabilities and the openings that exist in our life, I, I pray that you'll help us resist him. Standing firm in you and leaning hard into your word and your spirit. And our relationship with you. Help us do that, Lord. This morning I'm praying though for those that need to start that relationship. Would you let that be today? We already saw that. Lord, let us see it over and over and over again. Pray for those that need a church, Lord. Would you let them 
respond to the invitation and ask the right questions about that. Praying for those that just need to follow through with baptism. I pray they will. Because Lord, trials are coming and we need to know that we're standing firm in you. So I'm praying that needs get met here today. In Jesus' name, amen.